few thoughts on Psalm 46, which we'll look at in just a few moments, but Psalm 46 was actually written uh, as a report or response to an event in the history of the people of Judah uh, that took place in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. In 2 Chronicles 20, we read of a godly king of Judah. His name was Jehoshaphat. And one day, news comes to him that there was this alliance of three powerful nations who came together to make war against God's people. And Jehoshaphat knew that in the natural, because of the vast armies of tens and hundreds of thousands of soldiers coming against him, that the little, little state of Judah didn't have a chance. And so verse 3 says very candidly, then Jehoshaphat was afraid. I'd be afraid too. Because when an army came against you in those days, it basically meant your annihilation, your extinction. It was, it was live or die. It was very serious. But the same verse in the same breath, the, the next thing he did is something that probably a lot of us don't do. It says that Jehoshaphat was afraid and set himself to seek the Lord. His only hope, his only help. And then Jehoshaphat, the Bible says, called a national assembly and reminded the people of all the great things that God had done in Israel's past against absolutely impossible odds so that God would be known among his people that his people would know that he is the living God, that he is the one true God. The next day, there's a prophet named Jehaziel, and he shows up and he calls another assembly, but this time for the leaders of Judah. And this is what he says in verse 15. He says, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed, that is overwhelmed, discouraged, hopeless at this great horde that's coming against you. Why? The battle is not your battle. It is God's. And at that moment, the Bible says that Jehoshaphat and the people, they believed the Word of God. And the proof that they believed the Word of God was in response of what they did. The Scripture says that they worshiped God. They had a worship service. And they were worshiping God the whole time while the army was still advancing against them. I want to ask you this morning, when was the last time that you actually worshiped God? in the midst of your difficulty? When was the last time that rather than words of fear or panic or whatever it may be, planning, instead of that, just worship began to flow from your lips in the middle of whatever it was that you were facing? If you're like me, a lot of times we think of worship after the difficulty has passed, don't we? Oh, thank you, Lord, that that's over. Thank you, Lord, that we got through that. Oh, I know the Lord had to bring me through, you know, because things turned out well. So we thank the Lord and we have a testimony. Well, the next morning the Bible says Jehoshaphat, he gathers his armies together. and Then he did something you're never going to read about in military academy. He actually put the musicians out in front of the army. Now some say that's because they had, you know, worship wars back in those days. Some liked him, some didn't. They just want to get rid of the problem. So they, let's just put the musicians out there and get rid of, you know, get rid of the problem. Well, that's not why. Obviously it's because... They were leading the army in worship. Now, I've been in the military, well, I shouldn't say military, I was in ear cadets, and I know when you're marching along, you've got, you know, left, right, left, right, and they break into these songs, and they're kind of crass, you know, the, the macho kind of songs are marching along and saying all this stuff. But that's not what they were doing. The actual army was worshiping God. The, the worship team, the musicians, were leading them in worship. And so as the army is marching out to battle, their hearts are just being filled with an awareness of God. And the presence of God is upon them. And there just comes this 
boldness and this confidence and this joy and this strength as they move forward. And verse 21 tells us in 2 Chronicles 20 that the song they sing over and over again is give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord because His love never changes. Give thanks to the Lord because the power of the one in whose name we are marching forward, He loves us and He is with us. And then the Bible says when they arrive at the edge of the hill, they look into the valley where that army was encamped, and to their amazement, they saw dead bodies everywhere, lying all over the ground. In other words, while they were worshiping God through the power of worship, God sends confusion into the enemy camp. They turn everybody against each other until they're either all dead or they fled. There's nobody to fight. Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set himself to seek the Lord. Now, scholars tell us that Psalm 46, again, was actually written in response to this great victory, this great event in Judah's history. I want us to read Psalm 46 together. I'd like to do so responsively. If you're not familiar with that, that just simply means we're going to read verse 1 together. I'll read verse 2 by myself, so don't read. Not because it's the better verse, it's just how you do it. Verse 3, we'll read together, and we'll just kind of keep going that way. So let's start with verse 1, and we'll go from there. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That word present also means proven. He's a proven help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Together, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He turns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. This morning, I've titled the message, Selah, the pause that refreshes. Selah is a Hebrew word, of course, written in the Old Testament. It essentially means this. It means to stop briefly, to suspend what you are doing, and wait. It was actually used sometimes as a musical term, and what it meant was when you came to that place, if you were singing, you were to hush your voices. If you were playing, you were to stop just for a moment. You were to take your breath, catch a breath for a moment. It was also used as an instruction for reading. When you came upon that word, it meant stop and take notice of what you have just read. Now, what's interesting about the word sila is it is not found in the majority of the Psalms. So when it is found in a Psalm, you have to ask yourself why. And many believe that as the people of God would read through these verses of Psalm 46, or as it was read publicly, when they came to the word Selah, they would literally stop the music. When they came to the word Selah, they would stop singing. And they would begin to think about 
what they had just sung. I wonder what it would be like if we did that sometimes. What would it be like if we kind of stopped, if Pastor Christian just stopped the piano at a, at a key point and maybe one or two of the songs that we sang this morning and just said, Sila. Just, just think about what you just sang. When the oceans roar, I will be still and know you are God. Whatever song it may be. A lot of times we just kind of go through the, the set of our songs that we're familiar with. But anybody honest enough to admit that we sometimes don't pay attention to what we're singing? Isn't that true? It's kind of like the Lord said. He said, you draw near to me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And it doesn't mean always that our heart is far because our hearts are sinful or rebellious. Our hearts can be far because we're just distracted. We're singing the songs. We can sing them verbatim because we've sung them before. We, we know the words, but the reality is our mind becomes preoccupied with things. Things that shake us, noises that deafen us. I don't know about you, but I find sometimes when I'm trying to worship the Lord, I'm trying to lock in and really focus on what I'm singing and really ascribe it to the Lord in a way that He's worthy of, there's just a lot of other noise sometimes. There's things I haven't done or things I've got to remember to do or whatever it may be, just your mind kind of begins to drift off somewhere and you're, you're enjoying the song, you're enjoying the ambience or maybe you're caught up in the, in the rhythm of the instruments or the harmonies of the voices and, and if you're honest enough, sometimes you're even caught up with the sound of your own voice, aren't you? I wonder how I sound. I, I don't sing too bad. When the oceans rise, I'm pretty good. But the scripture says we need to pause. We need to honestly stop and think about the truths that we're singing because hear me, saints, it's not about what you know in the kingdom. It's about what you understand. It's not about what you know. It's what you've actually got a hold on. It's what you're actually walking in. It's what actually is moving through your life in your relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to allow the weight of what we're singing and what we're hearing to actually shape our lives. And that's what sila means. It means to pause and calmly think on what God has just said to you. Whether you're singing worship, whether you're reading His Word, whether the Holy Spirit just drops something in your heart, and He says, now just stop, will you? Just turn the radio off in your car, turn the TV off, whatever it may be. Just, would you just stop and just think about what I've just told you? Let us sink in. The scripture says Jehoshaphat was afraid and he set himself to seek the Lord. Let me ask you this morning, what do you do when things around you become unglued? What do you do when, when just stuff happens or when, when something arises that you weren't expecting? You're facing something you've been maybe dreading for some time or you get you know, blinded by, by something. What do you do? How do you answer to those things through the course of the day? The Lord says in verse 10, He says, be still and what? And know. Be still. And what I want you to do, I just want you to know that I'm God. That's what he was doing with the musicians in front of the army of Jehoshaphat. They were facing annihilation against impossible odds. He's saying, just worship me. Now, now Selah, just, just be still and know who I am, that I am God. You know, I always thought that to mean stop fidgeting. 
I don't know if a lot of you were raised in the church like I was. I still have scars on my legs from my mother's fingernails. When she would just gently put her hand on my lap and squeeze and say, sit still. And we only had an hour of service back in those days. And I kind of think that's what God means, just, just sit still. That's the impression I have of what God was telling us. But when I look into this word sila, the Hebrew means to be still. It literally means to relax. It means to let go. In fact, what's interesting, it actually means to let your hands down by your side. To be still. Let your hands down and know that I am God. You see, we want to use our hands to control things, don't we? We want to use our hands to kind of push the right buttons. We want to use our arms to defend ourselves. We want to take matters into our own hands and, and to just do things the way we think they ought to be done. But just think how incredibly vulnerable you are when you actually stop, when you lay your hands down by your side, you drop your arms, you let go, you stop doing, and you relax. That's what God says to do. But thankfully, He doesn't just say, let go. He says, be still and know. In other words, there's something I can know that will help me stop striving and actually help me to begin to make strides in what the Lord intends for me and how He wants my life or the situation to unfold. Be still and know. He says, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. You ever been in that situation? Just stop, just pressures, just the, the, the waves, the, the shaking, the, whatever it may be coming at you, the swelling. In the midst of that, he says, Sila, relax. Just relax. Now, maybe you're thinking, Paul, you obviously haven't been in the storm. Because if you've been in the storm, you know the last thing on your mind, the last thing that you naturally want to do is just to let go and relax. Now, I can't identify with every situation everybody goes through, but I think that as the pastor of this church, and as a husband, as a father, and the, the different hats I wear just like you do, I, I can probably relate to some of the stress and some of the burdens that some of you carry. But I've also learned this over the years, that if my first response to the many demands of life, again, whether it's, whether it's work-related, whether it's stuff in my family, relationships, finances, crisis, whatever it may be, that if my first response is always going to be one of emotion, then I'm going to be driven by emotion. And I'm going to find myself trying to answer to what I perceive as true in my own wisdom, my own strength. I'm not going to respond to what is true with the truth. There's a difference. The Lord is not saying deny what you see. He's not saying deny the reality of what is coming against you. He's saying, but I want to take truth and apply it to what you see as truth. I don't want you to use your truth. I don't want to use your perspective, your resources. I want you to be still. I want you to let go. I want you to drop your arms. Don't make things more complicated. I just want you to be still, and I want you to know that I am God and that I am with you, and I am willing to speak with you. I am willing to walk with you in and through this. You ever reacted to something before having all the facts? Anybody? <laughs> ever regret it? Always, right? I, I, can't, I heard this story on uh, 
one of the sports nets where they have a podcast, ESPN, one of them, and they were talking about the Dallas Cowboys. I don't know if anybody has followed this, but they let go one of their wide, I think his wide receiver. Uh, his name was Lucky Whitehead, kind of a bad name given the circumstance, but uh, his name was Lucky Whitehead. And they held a press conference, as the NFL does, professional sports. They tend to kind of get rid of people right away, distance themselves from any kind of bad press or bad situation. And apparently there was a young man who had uh, either robbed a store or had shoplifted or something like that. And I think his last name was Whitehead. When the police arrested him, they asked his name, and he identified himself as the football player Lucky Whitehead. Well, that's all the Dallas Cowboys needed. They didn't talk to Lucky. They just assumed the report was, was right. And so they make this, this news uh, conference, and they let people know that for the sake of the team, this is for the good of the team, we're letting Lucky go. Bad luck. And imagine the egg on their face when they find out later the guy who identified himself wasn't him. And the athlete actually had done nothing wrong. So I don't know, out of pride or as an excuse, they just stuck with their decision but it made the football team look pretty foolish. They kind of jumped the gun and fired somebody for something that he hadn't done. Well, we do that sometimes too. But God says that we need to respond by what he shows us to be true. And he says that when we set ourselves to seek the Lord first and we prayerfully weigh out all the facts in his presence, then he's able to help us have a meaningful and measured response. Parents, don't raise your hands, but... Have you ever found yourself at a time when you feel like you're at wit's end with your children? Does fear ever grip your heart because you don't know how to respond? You don't know exactly what to do in a given situation, and so you react. But then your reaction obviously only compounds the problem and your frustration because you love your child. You know, I've found over the years that sometimes the only consistent thing about parenting is our inconsistency. Isn't that true sometimes? And we get upset with ourselves. We get angry. We get discouraged with ourselves. We all make mistakes as parents. But here's the key. Whether it's in parenting, whether it's in relational uh, situations and decisions, whether it's in financial decisions, whether it's in what you post on Facebook, if we will not learn to pause, if we will not learn to be still, to know that God is God. We will always react when things get stirred up. But God would have us learn to respond. Respond with wisdom. Respond with words that actually promote peace and promote guidance. Let me give you a couple of scriptures. Psalm 15 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Anybody find that to be true? Let me give you another one from Ephesians 6. Fathers, do not exasperate. Don't frustrate your children. Instead, bring them up with the discipline and instruction. What? That comes from the Lord. The Lord will guide you. The Lord will tell you what to speak, when to speak, how to speak, when not to speak, what to do. If you will come away and be still, he says, and know that I am God. John Ortberg is a pastor and a well-known author a number of years ago. He came on staff at Willow Creek, a church of about 20,000 people, uh, just outside of Chicago. Uh, a huge undertaking, a new position for him on staff. But shortly after he moved there, he said, I called an old friend who was kind of like a, a spiritual mentor for me. And, and he said, I, I called him because I wanted to get some spiritual direction. 
uh, the pace of ministry, the pace of family, you know, taxing the kids, sports events, lessons, music, all that kind of stuff. He said, life was moving at such a hard pace that I called my friend and I asked him, and I said, what do I need to do to be spiritually healthy? That's what he asked his friend. He said, there was a long pause on the other end. And his friend said this, John, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Another pause. John says, that's that's great. I got it. Just jot it down. Okay, what else? Another long pause. John, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Be still, the Lord says, and know that I am God. Your life depends on it. Your well-being, the well-being of your family, the well-being of your children, the well-being of your ministry, your witness, your employees, your, their well-being depends on this. You see, we live in increasingly busy times, not just busy because work is busy, work can be busy, but we can also busy ourselves with so many distractions, so many amusements, but busyness is the greatest enemy of our spiritual life in our day-to-day of walking with God. We've all heard the scripture of Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, in which the Lord says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. But he's not actually referring to Bible knowledge. He's not just saying you have to take more classes, get more stuff into your head. The verse literally says this, my people are being destroyed because they don't know me. That's all it is. They just don't know me. Business destroys our soul. Business is what destroys the real you. The real you with all your potential, all the possibilities, all your longings, that's what the busyness begins to erode away at. Jesus said this in a paraphrased version in Matthew 16. He said, what kind of deal is it to get everything you want but lose yourself? What could you ever trade your soul for? We know the scripture very well in John 10. Jesus said the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. And he does that most effectively, again, through our busyness. He does that through interruptions. How many have ever had some quiet time with the Lord, and almost with an exception, you are interrupted? Either the phone rings, somebody needs you, the kids all of a sudden decide to start fighting or quarreling, or just a thousand things come to your mind. So it's busyness, distractions, interruptions, even amusements that fill our day. Not because we have to be on the go. But I'll tell you why, friends, because in our natural flesh, we don't always enjoy being alone with our thoughts. We don't always enjoy being alone with our God. We'd rather be distracted because we're not always certain we want to hear what we think we're going to hear. Jesus said the devil distracts and steals, distracts and steals. He says our schedule becomes full. Our days go by, but he says our soul is empty. Jesus says, but I have come to give life in all its fullness. It doesn't mean that there's still not business. It doesn't mean the storms won't arise. But instead of reacting, we find ourselves receiving and responding. Receiving and responding. 
In verse 4, the psalmist says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Uh, that expression, city of God, I looked it up, is also translated, the city where people worship God. And so here's another way verse 4 can be read. There is a river that brings joy to the people in the city where they worship God. Let's say that again. There is a river that brings joy to the people in the city where they worship God. As some of you are probably familiar, there is a water source in the heart of the city of Jerusalem. If you've ever been there, it's a well. I can remember if it's 150 feet, whatever. It goes way down right through all the rock into the, a source of water, a water table that runs underneath. And so whenever Israel was besieged, they did not have to worry. Even if the enemy cut off or dammed up the surface uh, sources of water outside, it was okay because there was a source of water that was so deep the enemy could not access it. And so they always had a source of water. And in that water, they had security. And oftentimes, they were able to outlast the enemy, even though the Lord oftentimes would give them victory over that enemy. He says, the river causes the people to be joyful. The river inside the city ensures the people they will not fall. And friends, I want to encourage you this morning to understand that there is a river God has given us that ensures that we will not fall, ensures that the enemy cannot outlast us. Whatever is coming against you, however hot it may get at times, whatever is roaring up against you, there is a source of life that the enemy cannot tap into. He cannot damn. He cannot stop. It flows. It is for you, and it will sustain you. And you might say, well, what is that river? I think we know well what it is. It is the overflowing of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus said in John chapter 7, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. If anyone believes in me, rivers of living water will flow out from that person's heart as the Scriptures have promised. He says that where God dwells, where he makes his presence known, he said it is like a peaceful, flowing river. It's a place that's secured by him. And he says that intentionally in contrast to the previous verses that talked about this chaotic water that's roaring and foaming. He says, that's what's all around you. That's the pace of our culture. That's the spirit of our culture. But for the person who knows God, who will be still and know God, you'll discover that in contrast to all that roaring, all that hecticness, all that nose to the grind, he says, there's a river. It's available to you if you will just stop and be still and know your God. You know, I think for many Christians, God is real. Would we admit that? God is real, isn't he? But I honestly believe for probably the majority of Christians in our Western culture, if we're really honest, we'd have to admit that he is more of an encouraging presence than he is a real person. Now, I know the reason that we sense his presence is because he's real, right? If somebody's real, you will sense that they're standing beside you. That's why we sense his presence. But for many believers today, that's where it stops. And if I asked you about your walk with God or, or how he makes you feel, oftentimes it would be, you would voice something that's in the context of, well, I, I just know his presence in my life. 
And so during the week, we do our best to live the way that we think we should live. And then a lot of times on Sunday, we hope that in coming to church that we'll actually feel His presence during the worship, and we should, and it's wonderful, and we hope that maybe we'll hear Him speak through the preaching of the Word. But really apart from that, He's not really somebody we can get our hands on. He's not really somebody we can say that we know. That there's characteristics about him that we know, that as the old hymn says, that we actually do walk with him and talk with him, and he, and he does shape our lives. Friends, I know this is, is elementary stuff, but, but hear me this morning when I say that Jesus is not just a presence. He is 100% person. He is somebody you can know. He's somebody who can talk to you, whom you can talk with, you can hear from, you can interact with. He's not just somebody you believe in. He's the kind of God you can actually get a grip on and you can hold on to. But you have to take hold of Him for yourself. You have to get this for yourself. You have to pause. You have to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. He said, my people are being destroyed because they just don't know me. That's why they're being defeated. That's why they're being confused. That's why they're being preoccupied. That's why they're empty. That's why they come to church on Sunday and hope to just get refilled they don't know me. He says, Sila. Sila. What does that mean? Stop, the Lord says. And think about what I've just said to you. Just stop and really think about what I've just said to you. I'm going to ask Pastor Christian and the musicians to join me. And as they do, I just want to close with a poem. My wise wife told me recently, I think people appreciate a short sermon in the summer. I said, no, don't be silly. But judging by your nervous laughter, I think she's right. I want to close with this poem. It's called The Winds of Fate. Ella Wilcox, she writes these words. Listen to these. I'm going to read this slowly, and I think I have it on overhead there. She writes, one ship drives east and another drives west with the selfsame winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales which tells us the way to go. Like the winds of the sea are the ways of fate as we voyage along through life. Tis the set of a soul that decides its goal and not the calm or the strife. Do you hear me this morning? It's the set of the soul that decides the goal, not the calm or the strife. Whether life is peaceful, whether life is chaotic, where we go, where we end up, depends how we set our sail. What does the Lord say? When the oceans rise and thunders roll, be still. Put your hands down. Know that I am God. And in that knowing, you will know 
how to move forward. In that knowing will come a quietness and a confidence, he says, that will be your strength. I like to sing an old song. It's called, There is a River that flows from deep within. There is a fountain that frees the soul from sin. Come to these waters. Just imagine the city of Jerusalem with the vast, deep well. There is a fountain that never shall run dry. It's there for us. And the Lord says, it's always there for you. But you just have to be still and know that I am the